for another episode of the Cycling Tips Podcast. I'm Abby Mickey, and I am joined by the regular crew. <laughs> Makes me laugh every time I do that, because I'm copying Kaylee. Anyway. Speaking of Kaylee. Kaylee is here. <laughs> Speaking of Kaylee. Hello. I am back. I'm back a week, a week early, uh, because Abby came on Slack and just begged me profusely to rejoin the podcast. She said, I cannot do it without you in another week, Kaylee. And I was like, fine, I will take one for the team here and I will rejoin and host the podcast. Unbelievable. That's, Unbelievable. That's some, that's some pretty, pretty massive interpretational liberties there. <laughs> yeah. Cause everyone on this call saw the text and it was Kaylee, you coming to the podcast this week? <laughs> I just need to feel needed. Okay. That's all I need. To be fair, I did text you and I when you came back and I said, please don't ever leave again. So, uh, well, I'm not having another baby anytime soon. Uh, my first child was born three weeks ago and is somewhere in the house. And you'll probably hear her screaming at some point throughout today's episode. Am I hosting or are you hosting, Abby? Did we decide on this? Do we have to like arm wrestle for it. Or what do we do? Um, I quit. Oh, so it's you. OK. <laughs> <laughs> well then i will take over i can do that i'm i mean i'm sad you're quitting but uh maybe i'll try to convince you after the episode to stay on. i'm just gonna temporarily quit due to jet lag so ah, that's right the timing is impeccable well we have a lot of excellent things to talk about today and we've got the usual crew with us here ronan all the way from ireland how are you um good yeah i'm vaccinated as well as of last thursday so Ooh. Very exciting. Mm-hmm. Very exciting. That would explain why your Wi-Fi signal is so much better today. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm not sure why they went to all the bother. If Bill Gates wanted to follow me, he could have just, you know, hopped on Strava or something. But, yeah. <laughs> they have enough data on this already. James, we just heard your voice and you're coming to us from your wonderfully appointed backyard. Oh, yes. Yes. My wonderfully appointed backyard with my with my nice little, like, Look, look, looks like a corrugated steel and wood overhang over my nice, however large airstream that is, which is clearly not mine, because that would be probably as expensive as my house. Love it. It's pretty dark for being 10 o'clock in the morning where you are. It is. It is. Well, I'm also not in Boulder. I'm in um, somewhere else. I don't know. <laughs> do, you, do you ever worry if the airstream caught fire that it would burn down the, the canopy there? No, no, not really. I mean, it's not it's not an electric car or anything. So, I mean, it's okay. I think I'm okay. We thought that for the, for this for this audio podcast, we would just spend as much time as possible talking about the visual Google backgrounds behind each of us. So exactly. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> moving on, Dane Cash, you had a busy weekend. Jiro started. How are you? Yeah, doing good. Glad the Jiro started. It's been fun so far. So all good. Has been a good Jiro, and we're going to talk all about it in a little bit. Shoddy Dave Everett, you're back in honesty. I am indeed, and it's raining 35 degrees yesterday. Very, very damp today, so I've been sat in front of the TV watching the Giro as well. Excellent. Well, we've got a lot to talk about. We have a little recap of what happened at the Giro over the weekend. We're going to talk about some of the tactics, who shone, who did not shine. Uh, The GC picture, we've got some GC stages coming up. A little bit on Anime Van Vluten at Setmana Valencia. And then, of course, as always, a nerd nugget to wrap things up. Shoddy Dave, what are we learning about Continental this week before we get into the Giro? We're going down the pop quiz route today. I've got, got a few questions to ask people. So first up, name one of the most versatile riders in the pro peloton who rides Continental tyres. Right, he rides CX, mountain bike and road, and he's has had multiple top 10 finishes at the spring classes, including a win at Brabant's Pill. This isn't a hard pop quiz, is There's only basically one bloke out there knocking it out the park. Right, here we go. And, and this weekend, he switched from his road duties, his old skinny tyres, over to the knobbly stuff at the Elite Mountain Bike World Cup, where he finished fifth after starting way back hundredth on the grid. That's way, way back, isn't it? That's like a week behind everybody else. Yep. It's not a difficult one, is it? That is 21-year-old British rider, Mr. Tom Pidcock. He rides continental tyres. And, well, he's a great example to basically show that there's something out there for every 
sort of terrain, a wide range of continental tyres. Continental tyres. Okay, we, you're probably not going to be able to ride as fast as Mr. Tom Pibcock, but with Continental, you get to choose the tyres that help him perform at such a consistently high level. So thank you, Continental, for your support on this episode. Thank you, as always, to Continental for sponsoring this week's episode. Now let's drop into the Giro. Kicked off with a nine-kilometer time trial, I believe it was, on Saturday. So, Dane, let's start with the... It's not really a prologue. It was too long for prologue. It was a time trial, but it was a very short one. Uh, and the end result was basically what we expected, right? I would say, yeah, Philip Ogana was probably the favorite for a time trial in Italy. He did win three of them last year uh, in the Giro d'Italia. One thing, though, he, he hadn't had the, the best, I don't know, last few months. You know, he was at Torino and he was at uh, Tour de Romandie, both of which had time trials. So he's, he's ridden in three time trials since March and not won them. So it was a little bit of a question mark whether he was really in form, but he left no question marks at the end of the day in Turin, where he took the 8.6k TT by 10 seconds, which, you know, over an 8.6k TT, that's, that's a pretty hefty margin. That is a, that's, a, that's a good win for Philip Ogana. Some really impressive rides from some Jumbo Visma riders that we, well, just don't know a ton about yet. Young, young riders uh, kind of on the up and up. They were, two of them were sitting in the hot seat for quite some time. Ronan, I know you kind of dug into which teams did best and a little bit about sort of who spends the most time, you know, working on time trialing, basically. What, what came out of that research and, and what can we take away from not just the winner, but sort of which teams ended up at the front of the pack after that short time trial? Uh, well, yeah, as you said, you know, it kind of struck us how how well that uh, Jumbo Visma were going on Saturday, uh, and we did a bit of quick back and forth on on Slack, just just talking about that and, and why that might be. And I think, uh, yeah, I started looking into the the results a bit, and and some of the, you know, Jumbo Visma and Quickstep both had three riders in the top ten, which is uh, you know quite quite impressive when you think about it that, that two teams filled uh, six places in the, the top 10 but then if you look slightly beyond that Ineos had had three riders uh in the top 13 as well and, and we were sort of wondering you know why why could you know so few teams be so dominant and I think it just comes down to you know um a bit of a as I old saying goes a rising tide lifts all boats and that you know those teams they are knowing for known for their you know uh, attention to detail when it comes to time trial stages. They put a lot of effort into getting their their time trial riders and their GC riders as you know prepared as best they can for time trial stages, and that probably filters down through the through the team. Whereas if we look at the other teams that were you know, or, or are in the Giro, um, they were quite closely grouped together as well. I would say some some of their you know especially the GC riders were all in around the, the top twenty and thirty, but. They sort of have less of a focus on the on the time trial as as a whole, and I think that in in a in a time trial this short and this fast, you end up with kind of an outsized effect of of the technology and equipment and setup and wind tunnel time and things like that. Because I mean, you're talking about average speeds close to sixty kilometers an hour. Obviously, uh, <laughs> the wind drag at sixty kph is is significant, uh, and Basically, our, our our assumption here is that teams that are spending the time to figure out all those tiny, tiny, tiny details, that's what's giving whole groups of, of riders sort of a leg up and sticking them all into the top 10 or 15 like we saw, right? Yeah, it's a bit of a compounding effect for the teams that aren't as focused on, on time trailing performance and that... You know, if they're if they've already got you know riders who are not TT specialists, and then the team as a whole is not focused on time trial performance, and they're not really delving into all the details, uh, suddenly a rider who is already at a disadvantage is you know doubly disadvantaged by less less optimized equipment, less op optimized clothing, uh, and as as you say, with speeds so high on Saturday's time trial, I think Ghana averaged fifty eight point seven kph. Like that's just incredible when you think about it. At those speeds, it, you, we're not talking small differences here. Each of those marginal gains suddenly becomes huge, huge differences. 
Yeah, and, and when the final gaps at the end of the day are going to be, well, Ghana's gap was pretty big, but if you look at the sort of the gaps across the top 15 or 20 or so, it, it's little slices of the second, right? So all those little tiny, tiny changes make a dramatic impact. You know, we've talked on this podcast over the years a number of times about this. I'm still kind of astounded that teams don't do, they don't put in the time to get this stuff right. right? It just doesn't make any sense to me why at this level you would you wouldn't be doing that. Well, I think it's, uh, I'm sure, you know, if, if everything else was, uh, or if money was no object, they, they certainly would spend more time uh, focusing on these details. Uh, but I think part of the part of the issue is that teams like Ineos, for example, we all know they've got a huge budget. They, they literally have uh, staff for, for everything almost. They have performance di- directors, they have aerodynamicists, they have... Uh, you know, a staff member whose sole job it is to liaise with with um, equipment partners to to get the very best out of them, and and then smaller teams, you know, they they just don't have the budget to to dedicate staff time or have those specialist staff at hand. And you know, if if we you know if we if we think about it uh, critically, we could say you know that this lack of focus could come back to bite a team later in the first week if uh, if one of their riders gets in a breakaway has an opportunity to take the the leader's jersey or something but finds themselves 10 seconds behind somebody else in the break who put more focus into the time trail but i think if we're you know if we're really honest about it the, the teams just we're not talking about a level playing field here some teams have much more um uh, budget to play with and have as such have have many more experts to call upon when for something like this yeah, I remember uh, Jonathan Vodders told me a couple of years ago, uh, so his team had a bit of a precipitous drop off in time trial performance about, was it three years ago or so? Uh, and that corresponded with the departure of a guy named Robbie Ketchell, who actually went to Ineos at that point in time. And then Ineos, well, they were already good at time trials, but they got even better. And that that's exactly what we're talking about, right? Like that he was an aerodynamicist. He was a, essentially his entire job was to find those little tiny gains uh, and it made a big difference for well the slipstream organization under all its names over the year years and then when he left that was a big hit on them not they still had all the things that he told them to do from before right but it's just it's a constant battle to modify and update and particularly as as equipment changes and things like that the other advantage that a team like Ineos has is they don't have equipment sponsors for everything and they're they're perfectly happy to change stuff all the time right you know Filippo Ghana's bike was not 100% quote unquote sponsor correct, which a lot of smaller teams forced to do. He could put on whatever he damn well please, right? Uh, so yeah, uh, Ghana had on his bike, he had an aero coach uh, front front wheel, uh, 100 mil deep, but that that is, you know, one of the fastest wheels for, for time trailing that there is. It's got a crazy narrow hub. Uh, it's, you know, got small details, just like the, the valve stem is, is hidden beneath the cap in the, in the front rim. And, and, you know, they, they, Aerocoach set out to create this wheel that was undeniably one of the fastest wheels available. And, you know, they set up, set out with the goal to almost force teams who have the opportunity to do so to, to buy these wheels and to use them. Uh, and then his back wheel, you know, on, on Saturday, I believe Ghana had a, a Princeton Carbon Works rear disc. Um, but, you know, th- this is where you really notice the attention to detail in that if if you look throughout the past year or so at different time trials that any of us are racing in, they, they, they will buy equipment where they need to buy an equipment to, to get the best performance on the day. But then they also know which equipment to use on, on which day. So they're not always using the AeroCoach front wheel. They're not always using the, the Princeton Carbon Works rear wheel. They're sometimes using an AeroCoach disc. Uh, and, you know, that that's where if other teams even try to imitate what any of us are doing uh, and Jumbo Visma as well to give, you know, credit where it's due, th- you know, they're, all they can do is imitate what they see, you know, and, and respond to it. Whereas what any of us and, and Jumbo are doing, are, they're, they're hiring in these consultants and specialists to really dial in for each individual course, which is the optimal setup, and 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 you know again, if we if we look at Saturday's time trial and the speed's been so high, fifty eight k an hour as we said, you know I, I was talking to a, a supplier this week who are creating some specific equipment for the Tokyo Olympics, and what they're looking at there on for track racing is is very specific kit designed for speeds in excess of sixty kph, and and what they were saying was you know these are speeds that we never see on the road. 
Uh, and so we're having to develop this new kit. But if you think about Ghana average 58k an hour on Saturday, that means he was riding 60 plus quite a bit when you consider it was from a standing start. And there's quite a few corners, uh, which he took like he looked like he was on rails going around those corners. Uh, yeah. So he, he must have been riding 60 plus quite a bit. So, you know, you're into that, uh, you're into that different um, ballpark altogether where, where we're looking at speeds so high that even the the aerodynamically optimized kit that that some teams would have for you know standard time trialing speeds around 50 kph Ghana's on a whole other planet at 60 plus and what's funny is that we hear people talking all the time about how uh you know like whenever an aero product comes out people complain like you know the wind tunnel results are done at you know 45k an hour or something like they always talk about how that's very unrealistic for average people which is indeed the case but as far as for performance stuff, I and mean, we have all this gear that's optimized for these really high speeds. I mean, that is far from being an unrealistic speed at all, obviously. I mean, they do entire Tour de France stages at 45k kph, <laughs> right? And, and basically, it's just to sort of, for a little bit of context here, what that does is the faster you go, generally, it, it decreases things like yaw angle, right? And the, the sort of the window of optimization. Um, yaw angle is the, is the angle at which sort of the wind is hitting you. Uh, and the faster you move forward, the tighter that yaw, yaw angle gets. And so you design things completely differently if the yaw angle is really, really narrow, you know, zero degrees, one degree, whatever it is, than if you're talking about some nasty crosswind, right? And the faster you go, sort of the less, less crosswinds uh, essentially affect the, the aerodynamics. So you design things very differently. And that's what we see from things like that aero, aero coach, front wheel, et cetera. Uh, Anyway, I feel, I feel like we've done a little early nerd nugget here, but wanted to dive in while we were talking about the time trial into kind of why why the top 15, top 20 looked the way it did. And that that's our that's our guess, is that there's a certain number of teams who have been spending the time, spending the money on finding these tiny little details that have a dramatic impact over a, an event, particularly an event like this one. Shadi, did you have something? Do you want to move on? Yeah, I was just going to, this blatant plug for podcasts, we actually did probably out two years ago, but definitely still stands up, is we at the tour, I think probably two years ago, wandered around the pits with Josh from Silk and a head honcho there, who actually works with several teams on basically getting them as fast as possible. And he pointed out so many things that teams could do to make themselves faster that cost basically nothing. Like one that I remember was them using quick release skewers rather than straight bolt through ones, which obviously would reduce less drag. So maybe we try and stick that in the show notes. It's still well worth a, a listen because it was amazing at the little bits and pieces that, well, the untrained eye doesn't pick up, but Josh did. Yeah. And interesting to see sort of how far Ineos has come since then, right? Because they were doing things like running quick releases in that particular Tour de France, but uh, I can't imagine they were, I don't believe they were. For the time trial on Saturday, we can go double check that. But even they have improved in those little tiny areas. Yeah, I I, I remember that particular uh, change because I think Josh said it was worth like six seconds in that team time trial that we were on the ground for. Uh, which I think you know some of the margins and the in the finish there were five ten seconds. So little tiny things make a big difference. Uh, we've got another time trial at the end of the Giro, so maybe we can do a little bit. We could do another TT dive around then, but I think it's time to move on. So stage two, Dane. Yeah. Sprint stage. I picked Caleb Ewan in my segment tips fantasy league, and he was nowhere to be found. Yeah, he, he kind of didn't have the positioning in the finish there. Wasn't really even in contention. Uh, but and just to be clear, you know, for the 21 stages of the Jira, I, I don't think we're going to go through one by one every stage. But all three of the stages before this podcast happen to be pretty interesting with stuff to talk about. So stage two, no exception. Tim Merlier took the win there. And another I mean, he's already proven this several times this year. So this is nothing new. But I think a lot of fans don't really think about Alpes and Phoenix beyond being the team of Matthew Vanderpool. And I think Tim Merlier has really shown over and over again over the past really two years that that is just not the case. Uh, they've got some talented riders beyond Vanderpool and Merlier really coming into his own as a as a pure sprinter. This was a real, you know, a bunch kick with with a bunch of really good names. And he took a pretty convincing win there in the finish. So hats off to Tim Merlier for showing that he can be 
up there with some of the best in this uh, Giro field. And I think we're going to see more of him. I mean, he, he looked good enough that I wouldn't be surprised to see him up there again. Uh, maybe we'll see Ewan up there again at some point if he can get the positioning right. But he was not in contention. The other big story of the day was Fernando Gaviria, who rode into the last, well, I'd say 250 meters, looking like he was going to contend for the sprint. Uh, his teammate, uh, Juan Sebastián Molano, was leading the way, leading the pack with about 250 meters to go with uh, Elia Viviani right on his wheel, and then Merlier behind that, and then Gaviria behind Merlier. So it, it was a little bit detached from his teammate. Milano was, was at the front, but he did not have his own teammate behind him. And when Merlier jumped to the left of Molano, Gaviria decided to go on the right of Molano in a very narrow gap. The barriers and Molano had, I don't know, two or three feet between them. There was not a lot of space um, for, for Gaviria to get through and Milano did not seem to realize what his teammate was doing. So as Merlier passed Milano, he started to veer to his right, uh, closing the very narrow window that was open that Gaviria was trying to take. And there was just no room for Gaviria to get by his teammate. They actually ended up running into each other. Gaviria then went into the walls, went into the barriers. Uh, fortunately, was able to stay upright, which is quite an impressive effort for him not to crash. But not exactly the result that he wanted on the day. Uh, finished down there in 24th. And it was it was definitely it was a really it was a really quick turnaround because it seemed like Gaviria was going to be in contention, and all of a sudden he was very much out of it. Uh, and yeah, it was an interesting thing to see. You don't see that very often. You don't see a teammate closing a door for his own teammate very often. Uh, it's hard to say exactly what happened there, other than the fact that Milano just didn't seem to have an idea that Gaviria was going, and maybe Gaviria went to a gap that really was a little bit too narrow to begin with. Couple couple points here. One, great that the barriers did not implode. Uh, that was good to see. Barriers did a lot better job of what they're actually supposed to be doing. Uh, in fact, the, the finish barriers into both of the uh, Jiro finishes, big big sort of bunch sprint finishes, have looked really good so far. Second point, kind of illustrates the, the just the chaos of a, of a sprint finish, right? When you've got your own teammate pinning you into the barriers and I guess puts into context some of the other incidents that we've had over the last year or so where sprinters have gotten pinned into the barriers by other sprinters uh, and how it is possible to do that completely by accident uh, not to say that some of the other incidents were by accident but it, just a reminder that you know the finish of these races is is chaos it's loud uh you're going 60 plus k an hour you don't always know where everybody is around you you're not looking behind you because that's a good way to fall down uh yeah, just a just a bit of context around all of the these sprint incidents we've had as of late that even your own teammate can close the door on you, can close the door on you sometimes. Yeah, I think I think Milano was kind of caught between a rock and a hard place and that I think he had actually lost Gaviria in the lead out and then, you know, he was stuck trying to decide whether to to continue the lead out or to sit up, but I I still think, you know, given the nature of that finishing straight the 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 you know the with 200 meters to go the corner or the the finishing straight sort of came off a, a right hand bend if I remember right and and in that situation I think Milano should you know should assume that his his leader is going to come on the inside on the shortest line and sort of keep the door open and he he looked to his left while the corner was going to the right and that sort of you know it it, it just created the opportunity for for something like that to go wrong but it, you know it shows you the the bike handling skills that Gaberia had as well and, and being able to keep it up right there is phenomenal. Uh, speaking of sprint incidents, Dylan Grunewagen finished fourth on the stage, his first sprint back since his nine-month suspension, of course, since he was suspended uh, for the, the part he played in causing the crash at last year's Tour of Poland that, that seriously injured Fabio Jakobsen. So Grunewagen, a little bit of question mark coming into the race about his form because he hadn't raced in so long, but... I think finishing fourth just behind Viviani and ahead of Peter Sagan suggests that he's going to be in the mix in the sprint stage of this year's race. Uh, so in interesting showing, and, and I think Yumbo is probably happy to have him back and, and you know getting, getting results or at least in the mix for results from here on out. Should we move on to stage three? It's a good one. A uh, bit of a surprise. Again, this one wrapped up just ahead of this episode. So probably by the time you listen to this, we, most of stage four will have finished off. But uh, that's where we are in time. So <laughs> stage three, 
bit of a lumpy one. Sort of had Peter Sagan written all over it, and clearly his team knew it because they spent the entire day on the front keeping an eye on that breakaway. But, Dane, didn't work out as planned. No, it did not. Taco Vanderhorn soloed away from everybody, basically. I mean, he, he got clear with uh, Samon Pala and then, uh, well, kept going. Soloed away from, from Pala and, and uh, made the last 10K about uh, all, all by himself. And uh, the, the break, so he had like 40 seconds when he went clear or something like that. And it seemed, just based on the fact that the Peloton was chasing with Bora doing a lot of work, that it, it didn't seem likely that he was going to make it all the way to the finish. But he, I mean, Herculean effort from him. And I think a little bit of a, yeah, miscalculation from the Peloton. Uh, Bora maybe did too much work without too much help. Uh, I think other teams probably should have contributed because if they had, it seems like he certainly would have been caught. But he wasn't, and Vanderhorn went to take his first ever Grand Tour win and first ever Grand Tour win for his team, uh, Intermarsh, Materio, Wanty Gobert, in some order, is the name of his, <laughs> of his team. Yeah. Brief point on on sort of the the, the sprint team tactics here. So I, I think Bora kind of shot themselves in the foot, right? Because they pulled so hard over the sort of lumpy finale. There was two categorized climbs and then a sprint point at the top of a third climb that probably should have been categorized. Uh, and they put all of the other teams on the back foot. So, you know, Viviani was dangling on the back and, and barely hanging on. Uh, Gaviria actually looked the best of the other sprinters and, and he had a bunch of teammates around him. But then... They came into the finale after these these climbs and the sprinter teams were still trying to make sure that their sprinters were there, get them into position, et cetera, et cetera. They weren't ready for a chase. And so then it was left to still just Bora to chase. And they couldn't anymore because they'd used everybody up trying to get rid of all the sprinters. Uh, so it's kind of, they're kind of in a, in a between a rock and a hard place, bit of a catch 22 there, right? Because they they had to get rid of all the rest of the sprinters, Caleb Ewan, et cetera. But in doing so, left themselves without anybody able to actually pull back the breakaway. And so it worked out very well in Taco Vanderhorn's favor. Taco, by the way, uh, so he rode for Yumbo Visma last two years and then did not get re-signed at the end of last year. Actually briefly signed with uh, a, a second tier, third tier team called Beats Cycling. Uh, I think it's third tier team called Beats Cycling. And then very last minute, like in December or so, got picked up for Wanty by Ike Visbeek, who used to actually be with, with Jumbo. So that was his first, he's in his first Grand Tour, his first year at Italia, stage three, gets a emphatic stage win, solo, ahead of a chasing Peloton. Again, thanks to, I think, a bit of a miscalculation on, on Bora's part. They, they either thought they were stronger than they actually were or thought they'd get more help later on, but they, they got rid of the help was the problem. Super, super impressive. No, no, no. This was a victory for Arrow. This was a victory for, for <laughs> narrow handlebars, for skin suits, for Arrow helmets, for tilted on levers. That as well. This had nothing to do with Bora. That as well. <laughs> you, you reckon that helmet's Arrow? That is one shocking looking lid he's got on his head. <laughs> I, I, I'd uh, merely put it in the Arrow helmet category. I have no data to back up whether it is Arrow or not. He's on like what thirty-eight mil bars or something like that. Not mil, thirty-eight centimeter bars. Thirty-eight mil bars. That would be impressive. <laughs> he won by four seconds, and it was solo for ten k, and he was with uh, Pelo for I don't know twenty k, fifteen k. So something that small can make a yeah. That, that's a that's a gap that could have been made by a, that kind of difference, which 100%. is yeah. Same he thing. actually mentioned it in his post race interview. He said that Pelo was was sort of dropping him or or put him in the in the in the box a bit on the, some of those final climbs, but as soon as they got into the flats, he's a bit bigger rider, and he actually mentioned the fact, I'm more aerodynamic, uh, and said that that was what allowed him to to get away solo. You know, love to see it. A rider like this, like I said, you know, it's, it's got to be, he's been kicking around the the pro ranks for a very long time. He's, he's 27 now, um, but never sort of got that breakthrough, you know, and like I said, was out of contract last fall, was, was, was going to basically drop out of the the pro ranks, uh, the real pro ranks, and got sort of a last-minute call-up and rewards his his little team with a Giro stage win. He's pretty awesome. Not not as good as a stage win in the in the Ampost Ross in Ireland back in 2016. I think that would have been much more prestigious. But <laughs> how could I forget? So there we go. That's the first three stages. Obviously, uh, not a whole lot of GC movement as of yet, other than some 
highs and lows, but mostly a pretty solid grouping from the GC contenders in that opening time trial. But Dane, we're coming up on a couple sort of GC-ish days. What what do things look like and what are we looking ahead to? Yeah, so first of all, we, we do have some pretty hard stages to come, even in this first quote-unquote week. Uh, we always call it the first week, but it's like usually 10 stages, so not really week. Anyway, we've got a hard stage on stage four, so that should be interesting for the GC. Uh, quite a few climbs there at the end of the day. And then stage six, also another tough day with a hard climb at the end of the day. Uh, I think we should talk about the GC picture, though, just because we've we've already learned a little bit about the GC in this race. And we, we went into this race not really knowing how things were going to go for quite a few of the big names. Uh, I think most importantly, the, the, the two of the, of the biggest names in the whole race, Egon Bernal and Remco Evenepoel, are coming off of injuries or, or health issues. Uh, Evenepoel, of course, crashed at, the, at last year's Lombardia and, and broke his pelvis. Uh, he went into the race with Joao Almeida, uh, his teammate, uh, and him both kind of seeming like potential leaders. And they both had really strong performances in that opening TT. Uh, Almeida was fourth on the day, only 17 seconds off of Ghana, and Evenepoel was 19 seconds off of Ghana in seventh. And maybe Evenepoel actually, you know, does even better when he's fully healthy, but to, to be up there would suggest that he's doing just fine. So I think Dakota Quickstep has to be really happy with the way things went in that first stage, and they have to be pretty optimistic about uh, Evenepoel's chances moving forward. We, we kind of knew Almeida was, was probably going to be a contender, but Evenepoel looks healthy. We'll see on the hard climbs to come whether he can hang up there. But uh, really uh, promising first showing from Evenepoel so far to suggest that he does have the, the form and the health. And then we'll, we'll have to just see what happens on the, on the tough climbs. And then the, the, other, the other thing that happened, I think, in between the last podcast and now is that Egon Bernal, uh, his team, the Unionist Grenadiers, said in their pre-race press release he was going to share leadership with Pavel Sivakov. And it, it's really hard to say exactly what that means because teams say stuff like that a lot uh, and we never really know how much, you know, uh, to believe it. <laughs> but Sivakov's a good rider and we don't really know what, you know, how Egon Bernal is doing. He was 39 seconds off the pace in the time trial, so fine. He, he did about what we expected. He was one second behind Simon Yates. Uh, Sivakov was a little bit in front of him in the TT, though, and... And I, I think there's reason to believe that Sivakov might actually get some some thought from from Ineos as a as a team leader. We'll have to see on the on, again on the hard climbs, just like with Evenepoel, how things go. But this could be a team that's you know really actually backing two riders instead of instead of just saying that they're doing that because teams do that all the time. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if Sivakov does get uh, yeah some 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 looks from his team. That said, Bernal looked fine in the opening TT. Didn't look great, but he looked fine. So keep an eye out on the, on these on these early climbs to see. You know, if one of those two riders kind of comes out ahead of the other. And an 8.6 kilometer time trial is basically the polar opposite of uh, a week in the Dolomites. <laughs> yeah. So that is worth keeping in mind as well. That yeah, You can't, t- can't take too much from these stages so far. So who's going to win? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we don't have to do that right now. Wait, we all made our picks last week and Kaylee wasn't here. So I feel like Kaylee should pick. And he's he... Has a little bit of advantage because the race has started, but he also has is sleep deprived. So I feel like it evens <laughs> out. So I think that I think Kaylee should make a heart and a head pick before we move on. And I didn't listen to last week's episode. Sorry. So I don't even know what you guys picked. I have no That's idea. That's fine. We forgive you. Uh, this, this you just you just pulled this one on me. Um, you put it on yourself. Wow. You, you literally said who's going to win. I feel like this is yeah, all yeah, on exactly. you. Kaylee. But I said it as a joke. I said it as a joke. We have no idea. Oh, let's see here. I think Almeida is going to take it. Joao Almeida. That's my guess. Uh, and you know what? You want to know why? Yeah. Because he wore those hideous Oakley Cato sunglasses in the opening time trial, but managed to make them not look that bad. I think part of it was the helmet. Part of it, you know, it just fits his face. So that, that I, I'm going with him because if he can make those hideous glasses look good, clearly in it for the win at the Giro d'Italia. <laughs> Y'all just stare at me. <laughs> I have no idea. I think he, I think he's a he's a, he's got a good shot. He's got a good shot. What's your heart pick? Who like you got to who would make you the happiest to win? Who who would you cry for? I, I don't think I'd cry for anybody. Tipo Pino being healthy enough to race the Giro and then win the Giro. Yeah. That would make Kaylee cry yeah. probably. <laughs> yes that would have that would have been uh shedding many tears no i mean i i 
I like George Bennett. He's just a good dude. He's really funny. Uh, I like interviewing him. And I would love to see him do well. I think that he would be an entertaining race leader, if nothing else. Uh, I would, yeah, I'd love to see him do well. But I think that he would need a, a decent gap going into that final time trial. And I'm not sure he's going to fully get it. I, I'm also not totally confident in the team that, that Yumbo's brought to this race. Uh, although I said that a couple years ago about the team behind him at the Tour of California that he then went and won. So who knows? George Bennett would be a good one. Uh, I'd love to see Egan Bernal back because I think that for our own entertainment over the next couple of years, a return to form Egan Bernal is important. So I, I think I'd like to see all, the th- all three of those things. I want to... S- I'll, I'll still leave it with Joao Almeida, but I'd love to see George Bennett do well. We'll call that the heart pick. And Egan Bernal, just for good of the sport, needs to be back. Well, thank you for letting me put you on the spot. People needed to know what you had to say about this topic. So. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. All right, should we move on from the Giro? Got a bit of a slowdown in the women's calendar, but some racing, right? Yeah, so there was a four-day women's stage race in Valencia, the Setmana Ciclista Valenciana that happened over the weekend. Annemiek van Vluten won stage one by over two minutes after crashing um, while she was off the front. And after that, no one could really catch up with her in the general classification, although uh, the other stages were won by Sandra Alonso of the B-Sky Durango, cannot pronounce that one, Alice Barnes. And then the final stage was won by Urska Zigart, who is on Team Bike Exchange, the um, Slovenian TT national champion. So... All in all, it was a good race. I think um, we talked about it extensively on the Freewheeling Podcast, the lack of lack of racing for the women at the moment. But they are headed to the Basque region to race some one days and then the inaugural Volta Burgos, um, the world tour, world tour race over there. So, yeah, that's about it for the women women's side, I think. When it comes to um, Anamik winning winning the GC, it's no surprise. It was a really really hilly race, all four stages, and so she was a was a favorite to win going into it. And she's you know maybe not been on the the form that we've seen her in the past, but she's still Anamik. So yeah, it's about it. It's about it from from the women's side of the sport at the moment. It's a funky calendar still. It it needs to. I don't know if it needs to fill out a bit or if it's okay to have little breaks like this. I mean, we, you know, we talked about this in the men's side, how it's overcrowded on the men's side and that maybe you could learn something from the women's calendar, but it still feels weird when you go, uh, it's a bit of a letdown after the Ardennes basically feels like there's not a whole lot going on. Yeah. It's a combination of, um, that the women don't have as much racing as the men already, but then because of COVID there's, the women's tours postponed a couple races have, have fallen off the calendar. So we would have had more racing were it not another, another COVID year. But I think we talked about, we talked about it last week in freewheeling. There's, there still needs to be a couple more races. And I think that we will see them kind of pop up in the future with the way that we've been cycling is going at the moment and the way it's growing. But the lack of stage races for the women is really a huge bummer. I mean, Valencia usually pulls in a pretty competitive, uh, field, but it's also usually the first race of the season for the women. And right now it wasn't as competitive as we've seen it in the past because a lot of the women are taking breaks after the Ardennes before they kind of build into the summer. But even from here, June is super light in racing as well. And, and like I said last time, I mean, there's only five days of world tour racing for the women from now until Tokyo or from the end of the Ardennes until Tokyo, five days. That's a four day stage race in La Course. <laughs> so That's crazy. Yeah. It's, um, it's really a bummer and uh, hopefully we see it grow, but at the moment it's just kind of like, I agree with what you say about there's too many men's races, but there's, there's a me- even medium between these two scenarios that would be really nice to see. Yeah. Actually that's, we'll keep an eye on that, that, that Tokyo store storyline too, because 
we are going to start seeing uh, probably teams released for that um, in the next month or two, because as you say, most of the racing is is behind them. So if you're if you're trying to make a selection for your Tokyo squad on the women's side, you have a pretty good idea who's riding well this year. Uh, weird thing though is, of course, we're still months away from the actual Olympic road race, so we'll keep an eye on that. Um, I know in particular the the U.S. selection is going to be pretty tight this year. Uh, so as we find things out, we'll let you know. Shaking your head, I know. I rolled my eyes because I feel like it's pretty obvious, but well, we don't have to get into it. Yeah, what we think <laughs> what we think is obvious is apparently not always obvious to the people actually making the selection. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, we'll leave it at that. I guess the, the good news on the women's side is that um, the Turingen Rungfart or the Lotto, Lotto Ladies Tour um, was in danger of being canceled. And we, on Freewheeling, we talk about this race a lot. It's in Germany. It's a really challenging stage race. It's really, really awesome. It's one of the races that Lauren and I have put on our list of races we wish were World Tour just because of the coverage that they would get with that kind of bump in in status and they were in danger of being canceled but have have pulled in enough crowdfunding to be able to hold the race so that's some news that came up over the weekend that's really really good news on the side of the women's sport i when it comes to crowdfunding races i wish we didn't have to do it but but it is still like the reason they were lacking funds was because of COVID. So it is a, a little bit of a special situation, but yeah, really awesome that that race is still going to go ahead this year. Excellent news. Excellent news. Before we move any further, I've just been scrolling through Twitter and noticed that um, one to Intermash, one to have posted a video, a GoPro video from Teco's bike today. So they clearly did not think he was going to, well, get a stage win. So we talk about all these aero gains, and then they go and slap a GoPro on his bike. That just that just blows my mind. That's superb. Everything, everything for content, Shadi. That's content above all. Content That's really is the key king. Here. Content is king. Well, if you want to look at that video, I'm sure uh, our social media editor Mike will probably repost it at some point. So go check out Cycling Tip social accounts. Honestly, it's not that exciting because being a fisheye lens, they look about a mile mile off the the t the pellet on behind him. <laughs> I mean, you know, how exciting can a GoPro be when it's pointed off of a bike with nobody else around? That's just a GoPro footage of the road at that point. Before we move on, a brief word from our mid roll sponsor here. South Tyrol and Alta Badia are well-known areas to cyclists in Italy and abroad. I've ridden there a bunch of times, actually. The Giro d'Italia and the Maratona de Delomites, a one-day event that takes on seven mountain passes, may ring some bells. Has anyone, has anyone here done that one, the Maratona? No, but it goes through Araba, which is a very, very small town population, like six um that i that i lived in for a short period of time huh. yeah it's a fantastic part of the world anyway the hairpin bends and high dolomite passes provide ideal training conditions for road racers and guarantee pure riding fun from south tyrol the roads climb up through meadows and forests passing by the summits and almost touching the sky in a triumph of hard work satisfaction and an incredible sense of peace Full of twists and turns and featuring breathtaking panoramic views, the unspoiled natural landscape far exceeds 2,000 meters in elevation. That's, what, 6,000 and a bit feet, which makes riding in South Tyrol special. There are even car-free cycling days, including the Celeronda Bike Day or the Dolomites Bike Day. When you start off a bike ride from Alta Badia, you can ride up some truly iconic climbs, including the Pordoi, Badea, as well as covering unforgettable uphill stretches such as the Celeronda. Cycling in the Dolomites is an adventure you will never forget. Thank you to Altabadia for sponsoring this week's episode. And add over just my own two cents. It is legitimately, it's one of the best places in the world to ride a bicycle. And if you have not done so yet, you should have it on that bucket list and you should go ride there. 
Also, at the top of Passaportoy, there's like this really amazing little chalet thing that's usually open for, for dining in the winter when there's skiing there and stuff like that. But in the summer, you can also go there and get, you know, a beer, glass of wine, whatever. But they also have hot chocolate that is so thick that your spoon will stand upright in it. It's just basically hot pudding. And it's amazing. <laughs> there you go. Go check it out. Seriously, go around the go around the Dolomites. Maybe not immediately, but you know, once we're back to normal. The idea of riding somewhere other than home right now just seems so weird at the moment, right? We'll get there. We'll get there. But we can dream about it. We can dream about it. Nerd alert! Nerd alert! Nerd alert! Nerd alert! Nerd alert! Moving on today, because we're a couple days into the Giro d'Italia, and the Giro started with a time trial. We're going to be talking about how some teams, and one team in particular, seem to be able to basically ignore what their sponsors want from them, their equipment sponsors specifically. James, what's going on here? Well, in the days when we could actually go to races, one of the things that I always used to do, and seemingly several other tech people like to do, was spot a variety of bits of equipment that are on teams' bikes that are not supposed to be there. Like, it, I mean, Kaylee, you are very well familiar with the smell of Sharpie on tires and that sort of thing, like, you know, electrical tape. I mean, the the general the general sense is that teams, if they sense they have a an opportunity to do better by switching to a different piece of equipment that is not sponsor correct, they will try and do so, you know, kind of on the sly. Uh, Ineos Grenadiers, however, they, they are much more... I guess they're much more bold about it. Uh, they are officially sponsored by Shimano. And, you know, Shimano typically is pretty stringent in terms of their sponsor contracts. I mean, you have to run Shimano stuff. More often than not, you have to run pro equipment. And a lot of times that usually includes pro wheels, especially for time trials. Uh, for Ineos, however, they have a history of going outside of their sponsor obligations. For the mountains, they've been using, like, you know, lightweight wheels, for example, and for, for time trials, they, they've been certainly going outside of that. And they've been, you know, they have been using Princeton Carbon, Work wheel, uh, Princeton Carbon Works wheels for a while. And I don't know if this is related to the lawsuit that SRAM has opened up against Princeton Carbon Works. But uh, Ineos now for uh, for this opening time trial, uh, they went with a front wheel from, from AeroCoach, an Aox Titan. It's 100 mil deep, as we talked about earlier in the, in the, the main part of the podcast. You know, you don't normally see 100 mil deep wheels uh, in, in general time trials, but you know, now the speeds are so fast that those sorts of wheels actually can make sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know what their arrangement is with Shimano, but they seem to be able to get away with it. Um, and you know, they're not hiding it. I mean, they're maybe not advertising necessarily that they're running uh, an Aero Coach wheel, but it's pretty obvious that it's not a Shimano. Um, and you know, it's working for them so far. And my guess is that, I mean, it's not like Shimano has a hundred mil front wheel that they can use otherwise. And they seem to be sort of just turning a blind eye. And that seems to be what Ineos is just able to get away with because they're Ineos. Are, are they buying their Shimano stuff or is it an actual sponsorship? I, I thought it was an actual sponsorship, but as you say, those Shimano contracts are list- usually... Yeah, they're pretty ironclad usually, but the Shimano is listed on the team webpage as an official sponsor. So... Or as an official partner, so I know that in in years past, you know, there certainly have been other teams that have just bought stuff. Uh, in which case, that certainly gives them a lot more freedom to do whatever. Um, but I don't think this is the case. I mean, this seems to be a sort of situation where Ineos is basically telling Shimano, "We're going to do what we want to do," as far as what I can tell, and you can't really do anything about it. And the reality is, you know, we don't really know what Ineos's actual official budget is, but we do know that's very big, and. You know, my guess is that if Shimano were to pull out of that sponsorship contract, NES would just be like, "Okay, we're just going to buy it." Although in a normal, in, although this year they probably can't get it anywhere anyway. Yeah, where would they even buy Shimano gear at the moment? My my understanding here is that you know, uh, and and Jumbo Visma are in a similar scenario where they are Shimano sponsored team, and they had been spotted running uh, Aerocoach wheels at the time trial on Saturday, also, um, and. My understanding here is that Enios and Yumbo have such a clout now, and they have done the the R and D work in the in the background. And what they're saying is, look, we have to use uh, either clincher or tubeless setups, and the the Pro TechStream disc is is tubular only. And you know, until until Shimano come back with that clincher setup that they require now for you know for 
time trials that are you know so highly optimized now everything right down to the psi in the tires never mind the type of tires is you know dialed in uh then i think it's you know it's kind of a case of well you haven't got what we need and we're going to go and buy what we do need yeah, we've we've always seen this in the past at things like Paris Roubaix, for example. I mean, it's like it's such an oddball event that teams have been allowed to run whatever they needed to just to do well, to finish, to succeed, to win, whatever, because their sponsor didn't actually have what they needed. And this just me, this just may be another one of those situations where, like you said, Ronan, Shimano doesn't make what the teams need for this sort of event right now. That's not to say that they won't have it in the future because it could very well be that Shimano is taking notes from AeroCoach here and maybe they will come out with a a front wheel that's more appropriate for these sorts of things. Uh, or it could just be that they're just not going to bother because there are so few people in the world who actually need that sort of equipment that they may just be like, okay, we're just not going to bother making this. You, you, you go get your wheel from AeroCoach. We're good with it. You know, we talked a little bit earlier in the show about sort of the high speeds of this Giro time trial and how that made these little tiny marginal gains even more important. Uh, high speeds and very narrow margins because it was so short. What, what kind of gains are we talking about here? I mean, is this the sole reason why we see Ineos and, and Jumbo Visma at sort of the front and Quickstep as well, at sort of at the front of this time trial at the Giro? Or is it some combination of everything? Like it, is this a really important is the ability to run sort of whatever gear you want is that a super important thing for a professional cycling team these days yes i think that there's this really interesting thing in cycling when it comes to the sponsorship of teams where some teams like if you're a smaller team and you have a a sponsor that maybe doesn't have the ability to support the team with the most um up to date equipment uh especially in the time trial where equipment is obviously the biggest factor. I'm thinking specifically of like when I was on rally and you, you wanted a, a special kind of handlebars. Like if you wanted the, the, uh, ski bend bars that kind of make a, you know, like a L shape, which are in my opinion, and I don't Ronan, you can tell me if I'm right or not, are, are the best aero bars for a time trial. They put you in, in the right position. At least I always, perform best with those kind of handlebars and the sponsor that we had simply didn't have that kind of bar but also we because they were our sponsor and we couldn't afford to upset them in any way we we couldn't outsource that kind of bars anyway so you were just kind of you know without the best equipment and if it's kind of this weird chicken and egg, I guess, kind of situation where if you have the money to be able to buy the best equipment, then you win the races and your sponsors kind of, they can care, but also you're winning. So you're still using some of their equipment. Their name is still on your website. And then the teams that have to use the equipment that they're sponsored by and have no other option, they're at a disadvantage. I don't know if that answered what Kaylee was saying, but I it, wanted to chip in. It kind of does. I think the I think the line gets crossed when you run a piece of equipment that is from a direct competitor. That isn't that is something that like Ineos would never run like you know a zip front wheel or something like that, or something from SRAM or something from Campagnol. Like it, that's a very very direct contradiction to something that you could get from Shimano. Um, and again, I mean, it, it, it'd be one thing if they ran a wheel. Like it'd be one thing if 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 Pro or Shimano had a hundred mil front clincher TT wheel that they could run and they opted to use something else. Um, you know, they just don't have what they want or need here. So it does seem like a case where they're able to get away with it again, partially because they're idios, but again, because they, they just don't really have from Shimano what, what they would really want to use. I mean, it's not ideal from a sponsor case because uh, from a sponsor point of view, because you know, it's, it makes it harder to be like, you know, our stuff one, whatever. Um, but you know, in this case, if I were Shimano, like you could still show an image of Ghana's bike and be like, our stuff won the opening time trial at, at the Giro. And it's, they're probably not going to lose a whole lot of face because they, you know, because Ineos was running an aero coach front wheel. It probably is not that big of a deal. Well, it does appear to work too. I mean, if you go to that Giro, if you go to the result list of the Giro, uh, stage one, the top 15 is basically packed with three teams, right? There's a couple exceptions, but it's basically three teams. Of those three teams, only one was really sort of fully sponsor correct, which would be Quick Step. Uh, 
which I believe was running. I don't know what wheels they're running, but they're running, you know, their specialized clinchers, the stuff that they're supposed to be running for the most part. Uh, and then the, the other two, which was Yumbo and Anios, were running sort of a mishmash of all sorts of uh, non-sponsor correct gear. You saw a lot of, you know, 3D printed handlebars, stuff like that. A lot of, clearly a lot of time spent figuring out which pieces of equipment were going to be the absolute fastest and not worrying about what they were getting from sponsors. Uh, just just to go back on, on James's point for a second, I, I kind of think it is a bit of an issue for Shimano, given that if you look slightly further down the results sheet, you've got Team Bike Exchange, who are you know, another Shimano-sponsored team on Shimano wheels, and, and they're actually using Vision wheels in the time trial, and they, they seem to have a separate sponsorship arrangement with Vision for time trial uh, for time trial days, basically, where they use the, the Vision Metron uh, front wheel and, and rear disc. And I think, you know, as as we said, you know, a small niche brands providing specialist uh, support isn't going to be an issue for Shimano. But I think, uh, you know, it, it, if Shimano don't come out in the near future with these time trial specific equipment that, that teams need, it sort of shows... I'm trying to think of the way to word this, but it kind of, it kind of shows a, a lack of, uh, don't know if it's a lack of support for the discipline or a lack of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reticent to say faith from the teams and the Shimano equipment because the majority of teams use Shimano group sets and, you know, very rarely have issues with them. But I think, you know, what I'm getting at here at that, you know, a, a time trialing is such a big part, especially in Grand Tour racing. And if Shimano sort of, you know, turn turn their backs on it entirely and we don't see the kind of equipment that teams need come out of them even if there is such a small market i still think that's quite important for a shimano to be seen at the cutting edge of the sport it is really tricky because you know we've we've talked a lot about how you know there there almost kind of needs to be more of a split between the racing world and the consumer world in terms of gear just because the, the differences in the requirements are so are so huge but at the same time like you said, Ron, I mean, well, you, you can't also have a company just completely ignoring what is required at the pointy end of the sport, because if nothing else, I mean, it doesn't really look good because if you are, if you are a Shimano sponsored team and that team is not running Shimano stuff, like what is, what does that mean? Even if, you know, I am never going to go 60 K an hour or 58 K an hour in a time trial, that's just never going to happen. Go down um, a hill, but go down a hill. Yeah. What's it? What if it's a downhill time trial? <laughs> okay. Okay. Fine. 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 Okay. I'm never going to go 58K an hour flat average in a time trial. Let's just put it that way. But, uh, you know, if, if I'm a, you know, kind of more of a casual observer and, you know, I'm a fan of the sport and I pay attention to what teams are running, you know, there certainly are a lot of, a lot of markets, especially in Europe, where it means an awful lot to fans what teams are running in terms of equipment. So in that sense, I think it, it you know, Shimano certainly is not happy I think about the fact that teams are not running Shimano gear in whatever capacity. Um, but like, are they, would they be happier if Ghana didn't win and was running Shimano stuff or are they happier that he did win and is running mostly Shimano stuff? It's, it's a, it's a pretty tricky situation, certainly politically. Um, but you know, given that option, my guess is that Shimano would be happier to see Ghana win on mostly Shimano stuff. Uh, I mean, ideally, he'd be running a Shimano wheel and still win. But um, you know, given that choice, I think they would be okay with what they have right now because ultimately, they just want to be on the podium or ideally on the top step of the podium with their stuff. Yeah, I think definitely the latter there. And well, let, let's also keep in mind that you know, professional road cycling is not the only market that they're looking at. They're also looking at things like triathlon, and triathlon is basically it's you know, it's a lot of the same limitations uh, from a wheel perspective as you know, a TT like we saw on Saturday. So. You know, Shimano definitely probably wants to they want to be in that market as well, which in a lot of ways is probably bigger. I'd say the triathlon market definitely bigger than the amateur time trialist buying deep wheels market, uh, at least here. in the Maybe States. just a little. Maybe just a little. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a market that they absolutely want to be in and that they know that people are paying attention to, you know, who's riding really, really fast at the front of these races. Uh so I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if we see something from them that is a little bit more tailored for, you know, these very specific events. Uh, I can't imagine, like you said, that they really love what they're seeing at the moment. But when you're Ineos or you're Yumbo Visma, you can kind of do whatever you want. That's the whole point. 
having all that money. All right, I think it's time to wrap up for today. Lots of TT talk, both at the beginning of the show and in Nerd Nuggets. We'll be back next week. I think I'll uh, I think I'll be back next week. We'll see whether Abby begs me in Slack again to come back. No. <laughs> TBD. You have TBD. a weird definition of beg. <laughs> All right. It's good to be back. Bye, everybody. We'll be back next week. See ya. See ya.